Thanks for listening to this podcast produced by Diddy TV. Visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive on-demand content or download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. Hey, welcome to Insights, everyone. Today, Amy Wright connects in conversation with Freedy Johnston, a visionary singer-songwriter who, for over 30 years, has been embraced equally by fans, critics, and most of all, his songwriting peers. Johnston just released his ninth studio album via 40 Below Records, titled Back on the Road to You. In this hour, he breaks down the inspiration behind the songs, as well as a great deal of information about his life and his connection to music. Johnston recorded the album in Los Angeles with producer Eric Korn and invited friends like Amy Mann, Susanna Hoffs, and Doug Pettibone to join him. Johnston's taken an unpredictable path throughout his 30-year career, and he's here to share how it all went down. From Diddy TV, this is Insights. Well, Freddie, welcome to Diddy TV. We're excited to have you. Hi, Amy. How are you? Good, good. Um, well, you've got a new album out, Back on the Road to You, which is very exciting. It's your ninth studio mm-hmm. album, is that right? Oh, yeah, I think so. I, I honestly, you know better than me. <laughs> I, yeah, I, it's, it's around that. It's less than 10. And you grew up in Kinsley, Kinsley, Kansas? Yeah, I'm from Kinsley. Well, yeah, I went to high I'm from Kansas. I'm, yeah, so I'm from Kinsley, Kansas. That's where I went to high school. Uh, it's a little town uh, out in the western part of Kansas, about 40 miles uh, east of Dodge City. And, uh, it's one of those, one of the many towns up and down the middle of the U.S. that calls themselves the uh, geographical center of the U.S., <laughs> or make some claim to it. It's an equal number of, uh, as the crow miles from San Francisco to New York, from my hometown. And so there was a big sign, there is still a big sign, at the edge of town, pointing to each city with the mileage. I believe it's, in fact, I know, it's 1,453 miles. And so when I was working at the cafe called the Dine Quick, which was right under that sign, this all sounds like, you know, a badly written uh, mockumentary, but it's like, no, I was working under that sign and I would be outside smoking a Merit Ultra. I think I smoked Merit Ultras then on my break, looking up at that sign, wanting to go to New York or San Francisco, couldn't decide. That was something I was going to ask you because I thought if you live smack dab in the middle and you're in a tiny little town and you think, hey, I want to get the hell out of Dodge and like go someplace bigger and you've got a sign that's pointing to San Francisco and one to New York. How do you make pretty a decision? Good choices. Pretty, good, pretty choices. good choices. Yeah. I don't know why New York. Just, you know, maybe I'd seen it in the movies more. But that's what happened. <laughs> you know, that's where I'm from. And I don't know. I don't know what happened, frankly. I'm, I'm very happy about however it's gone. The fact that people know my music is, you know, or anybody knows my songs. Right. So you grew up in a small town. Was there a music program there or was, was there a record store? I mean, it was really a small town. Yeah, it was a small town. My brother was the musician. He was in band and I just couldn't hack band. I don't know what it was. I just wasn't disciplined enough. But uh, my brother was younger by two years and he had a, he bought a guitar and it really made me jealous. So I ordered a guitar because he he, had, he bought one in Dodge City and got a ride or something like that. Anyway, he got a guitar. And I ordered one through the mail. So that, that, my brother inspired me to, uh, to play guitar. He now, he, he's not a musician at all. He's a retired horse jockey, a racer, you know. So he stopped playing music and I kept going. But it, well, um, yeah, go ahead. Well, so when you were listening to music, then you're, what were you listening to before you started playing? I was a child of the back seat of a muscle car in the 70s smoking weed you know i i never had a car but i would be the guy in the back seat i was really good at rolling joints and so you know so i listened to everything that my older friends listened to on eight track you know aerosmith zz top kansas uh nothing really cool right you know until i was older i mean we didn't have any rolling stones Eight tracks, for example, you know, I think, when, oh, I know that when Elvis Costello put out My Name is True, 
uh, that really, that was a real big impact on me. I was about 16 or 17. I don't know. I, I don't know why that record hit me so hard, but it, it was a new kind of music to me. I know it, it wasn't a new kind of music at all, but to me it was. So you order your guitar. What, what was your first guitar? I ordered a guitar. There used to be this uh, a company called uh, Stereo Distributors. They might still be around. They were in Delaware. They were obviously incorporated in Delaware. And they sold uh, 70s, uh, at the time, you know, really nice 70s gear. I wish I could go back in time and order all that nice 70s gear uh, through the mail. And on the back page one month, and their catalog, they had guitars. Whoa, I, I, you know, this is amazing. So I, I was the kind of kid that I, I worked painting houses and I would spend all my money every week. My mother was just, she was like, well, I don't even know what's going to happen to you. You know, it's really sad. And <laughs> so whatever money I had, I would save up. And so I, I actually saved a couple of weeks to get the guitar. And it was an ovation, not even an ovation. It was, yes, it was an ovation with the metal neck. The, the, they made ovations with a, I believe it was some kind of poly something and aluminum neck. And then the, the spruce top, and then the salad bowl body. Now I, I'm admit I even had one of those. It sounded great though, and um, that arrived. One I do remember. This is again sounds like a, a bad story. It was one sunny Saturday morning, and the UPS truck, which looks by the way just like the UPS trucks did in 1977. Nothing's changed. The guy got this coffin-shaped box out of the back. And I knew what it was, but I didn't realize it would come in a box shaped like a coffin. And, you know, I mean, there's a song there. There's all kinds of songs there. It's just funny as heck. Anyway, my mother saw that come through the door. She said, what have you done? And I said, I bought a guitar. She was just, she really was very mad. So, um, that's how it started. <laughs> you know, the Pink Floyd song, you bought a guitar to punish your mom. You know, <laughs> I don't think, I don't think I did, but she was like, I thought you were going to be something. And then I will say this when I somehow, I guess it's like winning the lottery. When I had a major label deal and was on the darn TV, she couldn't believe it really. And it was just very emotional for her, you know. Um, and I paid to redo her kitchen. Aww. And so it was like, Mom, it actually was worth it, wasn't it? You know, it was like, well, I don't know if it was worth it, but like, <laughs> it was pretty funny. I love that. Well, it's, it's funny because I, I talked to a lot of musicians and I asked them, were their parents supportive? Because it, I think it's <laughs> tough on parents when they're, they don't see a clear path to victory oh, for their kids. <laughs> you know. They want that. They want them to be. They do. They want a secure path. I don't have any mm -hmm. kids, but I, of course, you would want that. I used to have a dog, so I wanted the best for him. <laughs> so I, I know that. You know. Yeah. It's. I guess. I don't know. I don't know what to say about it. Yeah. I, I did it, and really, it was it was dumb as hell. I would not. I, I wouldn't even recommend that to a kid now. Hey, move to New York City. Get a job as a temp. And uh, live uh, on, on people's floors and then, you know, make demos at night and send them around to record companies. It'll work. You know, well, it did work, but it shouldn't have. Did uh, you ever see that night, movie, da night. Dazed and Confused? The, what you were yes, describing I your, <laughs> I, I your lived, high school? I lived, I lived a Kansas version of that life, definitely. Um, not nearly as, as cool looking, but it was that. I, that was my world. And that was fine. You got to come from somewhere, you know. It was... The 60s and the 70s, everything happened about five years later in Kansas, you know. So 77 in Kansas was like 72 in California, maybe, you know. I don't know. It was just, that's, that's my theory there. You know, we were, I don't know. I had big patch jeans, you know, that jean with the different patches, elephant bells and earth shoes and a peasant shirt. And big plastic glasses. That was my and long curly hair. That's something I miss. I gotta say. <laughs> but you know, uh, high school was all about trolling. I mean, you just basically got in your car and you drove around on Friday and Saturday night. 
He tried to find other people who were doing the same or had stopped someplace and <laughs> were doing it's something. Like I guess that still goes on. Yeah, we had we had a, our route around town. And when I wrote the song Wheels on my second record, I was kind of thinking of that. Um, you know, I don't know what I was thinking about exactly, but I was thinking about that because we would always just drive around town, drinking and driving. Obviously, it was just like it was no big deal at all, you know. Anyway, uh, statute of limitations. I can't be a <laughs> exactly. For that. Yeah. So you get out of high school? Did you go to college? Yeah, I went. I went there, and I, I went to Lawrence, Kansas. That was the best thing. And I did one good semester, and then things went. I don't know what happened. I think I had the thing. I kind of lot lost it. I kind of lost it. I don't know what happened. But a lot of kids. I've heard. I've just since then heard a lot of kids lost. It. I wouldn't leave my dorm room the second semester. You know, for days, and I just dropped out. It's probably the best. I mean, again, when I dropped out of school. My good friends who were students, and really good students at the time, they were saying to me, I remember them like, Fred, which is my real name, Fred, you really got to think about this. You know, this is the only chance to do this. And, you you know, and they were right. But um, I just wasn't the dude. I was the guy who was going to work in restaurants and keep playing guitar. And you know, even even if I was still playing in a cover band there, you know, I, I, I'd be happy with that choice, you know. Because I am a musician, <laughs> I've learned that much. You know, it, I I was made for this job personality-wise, is what I mean, <laughs> in the good and bad ways. So, when did you actually take off for New York? Then, and, and did you have goals of being in a band in New York <laughs> when you went there, or was it just, "Hey, I'm 20 I'm sorry years laughing. old"? And <laughs> yeah. I had goals. It was it, no, but that's true. I, I, when I left. For New York, I did just get a, you know, I just went there via bus and uh, got a job. It's again, it's like I showed up. I, I know when I recount this, people just think I'm making stuff up. I had a guitar that looked a lot like this one, but it wasn't a Gibson. And I pawned it, the pawn shop in Lawrence for like 180 bucks or something. And I, and I thought, okay, they'll get me to New York. And I gave the ticket to my friend, Christopher. Christopher, it's not your fault. And he forgot to pay on it and lost the guitar. I, I didn't tell him the exact, you know, anyway, I take the, the hit for that. Anyway, I lost my guitar at a pawn shop in New York and I just had one beat up suitcase and I got off the bus at Port Authority with the one beat up suitcase. I might as well have had a piece of hay in my mouth and no shoes. Seriously. It was like, it was like that. I went to my friend's apartment, Lower East Side and started my life there. You know, I just got a job very quickly. Just doing typing. And one thing I learned in high school, I could type. Bought a guitar with my first paycheck, just like I did when I when I had a job painting houses. I wasn't any better, but I was living on my own. I spent every penny before payday. <laughs> I mean, I might as well have been a been a gold miner, a sailor, or something. Like, you know, God. I just, anyway, so um, I showed up in New York City, and that was a long. That was like two or three years of real depression, and just. I liked the job, but I was, uh, you know, you're, when you're young, you're 25, and finally it started to take off. And I don't know what happened, honestly. I just kept doing it. I would say that to people who are watching this. I mean, I'm, you know, a couple generations ahead of a lot of people watching this. Everyone tells you this, but it is true, having been through it. If it's in you, it's got to get out and just follow that you know if you've got if people tell you oh i think you've got a knack for music or i like what you do well follow that if someone had told me that i sucked really you know i would have stopped um, but people kept saying like oh you seem to know how to play guitar naturally or you can you know because i could I, I i picked it up right away and i wrote really dumb little songs but my first song that i ever wrote i still play it's a it's called sparky the road dog i wrote it for the talent show and it's still like, you know, it's like, wow, that's not so bad for somebody who's first, who's first song, you know. So I'm glad I, I picked a job that I at least had some aptitude for. What was the scene like in New York City? What clubs were kind of popular then? What were, where were you playing? I moved to New York City and I lived around Queens. I lived in every borough, every borough. And then finally, when I lived in Queens, I got a record deal in Hoboken. That makes sense. And I moved to Hoboken. 
I hadn't done any gigs in New York City yet. I'd only made demos. I had it's a uh, kind of a long story. I, I'd had a band in, in 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 Kansas, and we'd made some demos, and I was shopping those. It's a complicated story, and I will say, after all this time, just to, as an, as a sidebar, if I'd done it now, I would have said to the guys in Kansas, "Hey, let's go to New York. Let's do it, guys." But at the time, I took my tapes, my songs, by the way, you know, and went to New York. And there was some bad feelings, you know. Um, anyway, what can I say about that? You know, I, I, uh, I wrote the darn songs. Regardless, I love those guys. If, 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 you know, it's a long time. So I, not my Kansas band didn't come with me, but I had the tapes. And I was shopping those around at a label in Hoboken, bar none, gave me a call. Uh, because their their friend at a I had a friend who worked at New Yorker magazine. This is, you know how circuitous it is. She worked at New Yorker with the wife of a rock critic, and he heard the tape and gave it to Barna. And I'm so naive. You know, I'm like I signed, honestly I signed with the first label I talked to. I signed with Barna right away, and I remember the my lawyer at the time saying, "You know, this is about the worst contract I've ever. This is like from the fifties. This is like you know." Here's a, here's a Cadillac and $100, now we get all your music kind of thing. And I said, it doesn't matter, man. You know, I'm not, what's going to happen anyway? I'm just going to be working a day job. That came into play when I was signing, you know, when, when I had, they had to buy it, Electra had to buy that out. It was worked out, but it was sort of like, I never even thought I'd have to worry about that. You know? I mean, the, it's a normal contract. Anyway, but that, that's what happened is I, um, I moved to Hoboken, and that's where I started playing. Got an apartment. And um, there was a place called Live Tonight, terrible name, uh, but it, it, it's something else. It was a, they played music every uh, once a week at an at a open mic, and I would show up there and be scared to death, just so frightened on stage, not able to I'd get up there and I'd, have, I'd forget all my lyrics. So I, I, the first set, I was just like, oh, excuse me, you guys, I got to think for a second. And then I'd get... So the next gig, I had my lyrics, you know, and I was like, you know, my fingers were kind of shaking. It was just, it was rough the first few times. Luckily, you get over that uh, real quick. And then I started people, again, people started liking my stuff. So, oh, that's cool, man. You know, you should get a band together. You know, got a band together and played, started playing Maxwell's. So that was my first gigs. I played at Maxwell's and that was my home. Uh, and, and the place called the Rodeo Bar and another place called Under Acme in New York. This was the late 80s, early 90s. I had no idea. I, was, I had no idea how lucky I was. I played, C, you know, played CBGBs, the old CBGBs, the best sounding club in town. You know, it was a golden time. I, I've always said, this is, you know, it doesn't mean anything. My happiest days were right, right before I quit my job, <laughs> my day job, because I was playing music. And I still had a job and an income. And I loved where I worked. I loved every, I, worked, I was typing at an architect's office. You know, they're still in existence. And uh, we'd go to lunch every day. It was just great. But when I quit, you know, quit my job, then I took, took on that, that long road to today. Well, was it scary, anyway, to, quit it was, your, scary to quit your job? And It really was. When I, when I quit my job, my manager, that's another problem. I just, I hate, I'm sure you hate it when artists do this, but maybe it's not so much doing this. Like I'm speaking to people through your screen, but I would just explain it really. I had a manager at the time and I fired him and he got really mad, you know, right for, and, and we, he got over it after a few years, you know, but that, that kind of stuff is really bad. I realized, I don't know, man. the biz is the biz. You know, I'm sure you've talked to musicians with so many stories. It's not even interesting anymore. But I, I do, you know, with retrospect, um, you, you'd always do things differently. Yes, that's the answer. Is he, my manager said, you've got to quit your job. And I said, what? He said, yes, that means I'm not going to have any money. He said, well, you're going to move in with the guitar player, Kevin, and uh, you'll be fine. So I got really poor really quick. Um, and we did go on the road. But it was nice to have a paycheck. I missed that right away. It took a long time before that came back. Um, so I did that. And so what happened was I made one record with Barna. And people loved that record. It was my first record. I mean, I was bare, I was still at a day job. I should not have been in a recording studio, you know. But I was. And um, my great buddy, Chris Butler, 
from the waitresses was the uh, producer. And uh, it's a very weird record. Now, I, I like it now. It's just completely, God, you know, I wish I could be that creative now, honestly. So that record came out and people couldn't believe how much they disliked it. <laughs> as far as the critics went, everyone was like, what? Like, I, I remember giving it to one guy. He's like, and he's, uh, I said, you know, is it, man, or I gave it to my, my manager gave it to a friend of his who was a big music guy. He's like, don't ever do that to me again, man. I played that for my friends and I was mortified. Oh. It's hilarious. So, I mean, that's Chris Butler. This is nothing to say, to say about your production. It's just, you know, my voice really kind of like this, you know? So that was that. I made my second record and it was a hundred times better. And still, I will say, and that's fine to say, people will always say, till I die, that's my greatest record, my second record. There's no way I could ever top it. So there you go. I went from being like, not even belonging in the studio to making a record that, I could tell it was weird for me too, because all these bands in town, when I made that record, like, how'd you do that? You know, because you really did suck. And you somehow like learned to not suck. <laughs> I don't know what happened. I guess I practiced. Because truly, I, I look back at Can You Fly at those songs like, wow, oh, good job, you know? I mean, it's so long ago. It is like somebody else did it. So I'm able to, to think about it that way. Like, hey, kid, good job. Wonder what happened to you. Why did you suddenly figure it out so quickly? But I did. And that was what happened to me. Can You Fly? Um, so you, you put that out. And, oh, then the next one was This Perfect World. And that's the one you yes. said people say is, and that's the one that had bad reputation, which is that's it was the a big biggest hit for one. you. Right. Yeah. I don't, again, I don't want to disparage that record by saying that Carrying You Fly is my greatest record. Butch Vig might agree with that, who, who produced This Perfect World, right? Because he told me he was a fan of that record. Really highly, the hugest compliments I got from people. That Butch Vig knew my record. You know, when he was working on Nirvana, it's like, oh, that's weird. You know, I'm still not, that's something I'm not good at. It, and I still starstruck, you know, like meeting anybody, but just even knowing they listen to me. It's not any false humility or bullshit like that. It's really. Do you, do you think being in still, New York City was it. helpful? I mean, do you think that being in New York was oh, um, kind of pivotal to your career taking off because you were kind of at the epicenter of where they were making albums and the, where the critics were and the whole industry yeah. was? Totally. No, it's the only way it happened. I lucked out. I was right place at right at the right time. Um, you're totally right. Being it, working in the uh, the media center of the, of the country, you know, I sold all my records there. Most of my records were sold in New York area, so absolutely, it was worth moving there. And so again, young songwriters are looking for tips. Move to the city, you know. Move to Nashville, really, too. You know, I could have done that, but I didn't want to. I will say this, you know, I'm not going to say anything about Nashville. La la la. <laughs> Well, there's, there's LA, there's Nashville, there's New York, I guess New Orleans, maybe uh, if you're depending on the kind of music sure. you're in, um, but, uh, they're all music business places. Um, Memphis, yeah. you know, we're in Memphis and there's a lot oh, of music. Yeah. We get, we get a lot of, uh, we make a lot of music here too. Um, but, uh, New York is by far the biggest. So I just sort of thought, well, especially when you were, making those records in the 90s, it just seemed like that would have been a real epicenter for music in New York. It was. It was actually the best choice to, to be there. I, I agree. Yeah. I, um, listing all those towns, though, I'm thinking that it was much more important then. Now, with, you know, it goes without saying, with the available media everywhere, you can come out of Boise and and be world class, you know, if, you, if you're if you're if you're good enough, you know, and if you make cool enough videos, so it does help. It certainly helps if you're gonna like I don't know, get on yeah, a song in a film, you know, or on TV. Heck yeah, become a singer songwriter who plays for free in LA, you know, do that. It will, if it's a, or in New York, you know, it's a good idea. Somebody will walk in and say, oh, I love that song. I need that for my, my project. That happens in other towns. The, you know, again, Nashville's fantastic for that, of course. How did your life change after you put out a big album and had a big hit, radio-friendly hit? And uh, not at all. Things were just normal. It was, 
Nothing changed at all. Nothing changed at all. It completely ruined my life. I say that with with uh, in a in a in a pleasant way, you know, just like not a pleasant way, but like it. The adage that broke my heart that I heard later, and that is true, is that, and I'm sure you've heard, is that success success reveals you; it doesn't change you. And so, when I was having so much trouble controlling my emotions and, you know, being a nice artist. I, I, later on, I realized, well, that's just me. You know, the success just brought it out. It wasn't like the success made that. So, I, 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 all I can say is I, I am very proud of that, that I maintain the ability to write songs. I do it all the time. It's like a condition almost. You know, I can't help doing it. So that part of it, I've always been happy about, you know, the, the writing. Don't always hit it out of the park at all. Sometimes I'm like, oh, that could be better. Even on this record, I don't want to say that, but like a couple of songs, I'm like, oh, I'd like to have given you another day, but, but you know, whatever. I'm still happy with that. And so all the other stuff I just got to not worry about. Um, you know, I mean, but my, in general, my life changed in a way that I was not prepared for. I would say that mm-hmm. in any way. And I, and I would say that um, it was a thing that I guess I want to say this really nicely. I didn't have anybody to direct me. I don't want to say that, but it, you know, I had management and this is really, I really mean this like in a nice way. I really missed my dad then. Mm-hmm. And my dad passed him. Boy, oh boy. And, um, I needed that somebody to real or an older brother. So, cause I didn't get that until it was already too, you know, once you, once you piss off the big, you know, whatever, it's just, I don't know what to say. I, I, I want this, see, now this, Amy, this, I hope there's going to be some editing here. Cause I don't want to do like the whole, you know, Oh, I should have been better kind of thing so much, you know, I, no. I don't want to, yeah, I don't, I don't want that to be the theme. I'm really freaking happy. Yeah. And, and talking about the past, talking about the past is going to make me, like, oh, I wish I, I didn't know. I'm not just going to sit here and lie and say, oh, yeah, I was the star of, of the 90s. Like, no, I was a complete dick. You know, it was really, and it was really hard for me to get through. You know, I was just like, what's wrong with you? You know, you should be happy kind of thing. And I, I admit that. What was wrong? Because you were very but young. I, so, you know, we're all young ones. And you're young. And we yeah, all go through- just, it was a weird thing. It really was. And it did change, of course. You know, I got to the point where, where I am now. Where, um, now you're known as and, you you're know, known I, as a songwriter, and do you ever write songs for other people as well? I should be more, what's the word? You know, uh, proactive about it. But I do, uh, I do work with other people. I have a side project with John D. Graham and, and Susan Cowsell called the Hobart Brothers and Little Sis, and we write songs together. Um, it's the only team I've ever worked with where we really do write songs together. We crack each other up. It's just great. Uh, so we made a record about 12 years ago. We're making a new one now via, via Zoom. I've done that. But I've never had anybody cover my, my songs, really, you know, for whatever reason. And whenever I've tried to write for someone, it's, it's um, you know, you just got to keep trying. I've written with people. And I will say the folks I've written with, I did a, I did a string of uh, co-writes when I was with Bug Music. And all those co-writes uh, ended up on the, the other person's record. You know, I, I was helping them finish their song, so I was happy about that. And, you know, I just saw my buddy's garbage uh, in, in the band Garbage up in Minneapolis. Uh, I, I sing with a Steely Dan cover band. So I did a gig in Minneapolis um, at the place I'm playing in Minneapolis, actually, next month, the Parkway Theater. I love singing with a Steely Dan cover band. I could do that every night. Anyway, uh, and Garbage was playing the next night, so we went to see them. And those guys are my, you know, they're two, three, four years my senior. And they act like they're 25 and they admit, you know, they're just never going to admit that they're not young rock stars. And that, I really take that as a, you know, they give me hope that I can just keep doing this. Musicians can really just keep doing it. Now, do you love performing as much as songwriting? Well, I, you know, this is really a thing that's kind of before COVID, before videos. I would have bad gigs. Because, you know, everybody, I've seen Steve Earle have bad gigs. Alejandro Escobedo have, I mean, you know, like bad meaning, like dealing with the people who are talking. 
Oh, of course. These are yeah. great, great. These are great geniuses. People can be very rude. <laughs> and they have to deal with it, you know? Mm-hmm. And so Steve Poltz, if you know who he is, an mm-hmm. undeniable genius, and he has to deal with it. Not as much, though, I must say, because he's, you can't keep your eyes off of him. Anyway, that, during COVID, when I do all the video shows and stuff, it burned it out of me somehow. But any gig I've had post-COVID, I just, it's, I'm, I'm reborn, as the, you know, as the Christians say, like, I love being on stage. I'd love to go do a gig right now. You couldn't depress me. You couldn't talk enough to depress me, you know? I'm here to play music and I'm going to love, I did the Steely Dan gig. I was like roaming around the stage like Henry Rollins or something. And, and like, cause I'd sang with them for many years. I'm like, what's up with you, man? Are you on blow or something? Like, Jesus Christ. No, I'm a pothead. I am just <laughs> into music now. You know, I'm re- I mean, I was always into it, but I into it, you know, and it's, it's, I'm not, no, you know, I'm putting it all out there no matter what. You know, so that's been a good thing. Something happened during COVID um, that was positive. I think it was positive on many ends for a lot of people. Yeah, you know, I think think you're right. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I think a lot of people took a lot for granted. And now that we're on the other end of this, people are saying, hey, I'm never taking that for granted, especially in the musical world where your life is about performing and and create creativity and collaboration with other people in some cases. And so all that went out the window and mm-hmm. there was time to reflect and think about it. And uh, I talked to a lot of folks and almost um, hands down, everyone is saying that um, they have a renewed interest and love of performing and playing and writing just because that was taken away for a bit. That's great to hear that that's what like, mainly what you hear. I suppose the ones who, I don't want to be dark, but the ones who couldn't do, deal with it didn't make it through. Maybe. You know what I mean? But yes, the it's it, it's sort of burnt out some underbrush, maybe. You know, maybe that's a metaphor. I don't know. I'm glad to hear that, that you that that's the consensus that you hear that that it's a renewed thing. I, you know, it's we we have to assume that as many families had renewed love for each other as went their separate ways. But both of those were good things. You know, they were, it was time to get honest. I think that's my guess from, you know, you'd have to, it'd have to be same with bands. I think I'm sure a lot of people, especially in young bands, you know, like the bass player figured out he could make three times the money doing drywall. And it's like, you know, so he's not in the band anymore, that kind of stuff, you know? So it's, you know, if you were really meant to be in the band, you made it through COVID. I guess. Right. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. That is true. I think that it forced a lot of decisions for a lot of people. But if you came through it all and you're back at it, you're excited about it in most cases and uh, ready to uh, ready to roll. And speaking of which, back on the road to you, you're putting out a new album, which I had the pleasure of listening to. I love your oh. new album. It's so oh, melodic thank you very much, and, Amy. and really just, it's fun. It's a fun album. And I, um, so it's been a few years since you released an album. Were you writing these songs all along the way? Or um, was it just a creative spurt that happened just recently? No, they, they, all the songs are, yeah, I'm, I'm a long, long ball guy. I got to say, it's really nice to hear my record described as fun. It really is. I, you know, I don't, it's, I'm happy for that because a lot of the songs are not the typical morose stuff for me, you know. Um, but no, I I take a whole lot of too much time. That's another thing. You know, the, the, the idea that I usually take, I don't know, two, three years to finish a song. I don't know. I'm kind of like after COVID, I'm like, you know, we some way to speed this up a little bit, you know. <laughs> Because I used to write them in a day or an hour. I don't know how I did it. And so I'm trying, I think I'm relearning that somehow. Like I've been working on, well, let me say this. The, um, doing the record was last Christmas. And so I'm going to put a record out every 18 months now. So I'm going to record another record this June. And for me, that's like tomorrow. 
as far as getting 10 songs together, you know, so I've been working very hard to get those 10 songs together and, and listening to stuff, which I never really, I do listen to stuff, but it's good to have things thrown at me. It doesn't change. I've already got these songs. The, the music I have, it's already written. Yeah, I wrote, like, so I'm just coming up with, with, uh, with words and coming up with production. You know, it's the, the music really gets, it's like a stain on a carpet or something when these things come out. It's like, it's, it's, ha- it's either going to get words or it's just going to bother me the rest of my life. You know? Anyway, the, um, the, the, these songs were pretty much ready to go before COVID. A lot of them were, but there were five or six that I finished during COVID. That's what it was. And I, I couldn't make it during COVID because I was, I really isolated. I went out to, um, my brother's farm outside of Oklahoma city. He, he doesn't even live there. Well, he lives in there. He was in Florida at the time. And I was just me, man, uh, you know, on six acres. I didn't know anybody out there for a whole year. And yeah, I went crazy. You know, I'm crazy anyway. And I, I had to try a couple of times. I had to travel to Wichita to see friends. And luckily I smoke a lot of weed because that got me through. Um, but boy, that was a test really like, I haven't seen anybody I know for months. You know, it's a really freaking test, a real test. But one thing I will say about that that's positive, and he may—he won't be watching this, but if he was, I, have a, I had a na- my one neighbor out there, Rick, excellent organic pot grower, but complete, total, fascistic, right-wing, trumpet. Butthole. I mean, this shouldn't say butthole. It's a wrong word. Just a right-wing Trumper fascist. That's as accurate as I could be. A guy who wants to overthrow democracy. But <laughs> a fun guy. But a fun guy. And we like the same kind of music. We drink together. And it's like, man, this is weird. Like, you're my buddy, but I, we completely disagree on all politics. And uh, that was a lesson. That was really good. I, I, that was a positive thing out of COVID. I go through back through Oklahoma city, I'm definitely going to go see Rick and hang out, you know, like, I don't care about his MAGA hat collection and that kind of stuff, really. Cause he's, it's like, well, whatever, you're still pretty funny, you know? So I'm glad for that experience. I wouldn't have done it unless I was forced. Wouldn't have done it, you know? So who, where did you record, where did you record the, the new album? So the new record, yeah, I uh, decided to make a record last year. And so we did a Kickstarter campaign. The last one I'm doing, by the way, you people out there who did, I, uh, don't worry, I won't do this again because I'm the worst at the fulfillments. Even though I do, I, I'm getting it done. <laughs> uh, the worst. But my fans are the best fans. And um, the few hundred who, uh, who helped out, make, helped me make this record. Uh, and they got, you know, they got stuff for it. Um, so anyway, we, we uh, then went to uh, 40 below records and they said yeah let's do this and eric uh, porn who runs the labels a producer also i said yeah i can i can uh, i can produce this record so we we just quickly put together a crew it was kind of like you know okay let's, let's go you know um it was all it happened all really fast last fall and uh that's the way to work you, you know i certainly you know is to get it done so called up some legendary friends i have dusty wakeman david raven Doug Pettibone, you know, Sasha Smith, just like a better band than you know, I could ever, ever want. And we went into um, a great studio in North Hollywood called Dave's Room. Uh, a one room, a one studio room uh, from, I don't know, if it's from the 70s or 80s, but it's been there forever. Bob, I think since Barley's long dead, it's okay to just say Bob and you know who I'm talking about. Bob is recorded there. I guess you could say Bob Weir, but they usually call him Bobby. Anyway, Bob Dylan, recorded there. Um, and Lucinda, another another one one name legend. You know, she like did a couple records there. So it was like, it's good enough for me, man. So I, and I would say as, as a real plug, you're looking for a place to make a record, go to Dave's room in North Hollywood. I'll go there again. It's fantastic. So that was, that was it, you know, five days in the studio, five days mixing. All of it hard, but uh, Eric did a great, great job of uh, really detailed stuff. Because as, as you heard, there's there's melodic stuff, all the backgrounds, you know, and the um, 
put some strings on there and stuff. It's very, uh, all that stuff takes a lot of time to knit together. And there you go. Then a record is made. And I really, you know, it's just, it's really just great, man. I, I, I'm glad to be part of a team again. You know, it's, it's, it's made, it's sort of like, you know, I, I mean, you hear this from people my age. It's like, I feel like I'm kind of getting some payback for all the, all the time, you know, that I, that I was not doing, it was not so happy or something, you know, uh, because now it's all just like, like I always wanted it to be. Hey, we made a record. Hey, we're going on the road, you know? Um, the stress I have is stress about the, the stuff in the world around me, you know, January 6th, stuff like that. It's not stress in my world, really. Well, I stress about my car because it needs some work. <laughs> That's about it. Well, and you had some really special guests on this album as well. You had. Well, yeah, Lucinda was going to. No, Lucinda, she early on, before we really started the record, she said she couldn't do it. Um, I think that was how it went. But uh, my dear sister, Susan Cowsill, sings on it, on the song Power of Love. It's a very new song, a very old song that's a new song to the people. Anyway, um, and then the great Susanna Hoffs, my friend from, from years back, and the great Amy Mann, they're all greats. Complete heroes. So they were nice enough to, to join me on, on three songs. And uh, that's, that's the record. Then uh, Stevie Black, great LA string guy, did the strings. And my friend Rob Smiley did the graphics. He's a, he's a pretty amazing dude. So it's just, it's a great, you know, it's a, it's a great feeling, Amy. I've got a record out and it's, I don't know what's going to happen with it. And the great thing is I don't really, I'm not, I'm not stressed about how, you know, oh God, I hope this is a hit. It's, like, it's already, it's already great. You know, I've already got gigs and, and people are already liking it. So it's a hit for me. I'm sure it will be on, I'm sure we'll get played somewhere, you know, on the radio. So I'm not going to stress it. Well, I have it streaming. <laughs> Do you really? Yeah. That's really so nice. I, I have it. I'm listening. And and um, would you say that with your songwriting, that when you write songs for an album, a particular album, that it reflects where you are in your own life at the time? Or is it just commentary on society in general? I wish it didn't, but I have no choice over that, you know? I always find that it... Things are written about that on, well, when I used to make records in a regular session, things are written about that happened during the previous record. So it's like not current things are written about, but things that happened a few years ago, but they just come out because you're looking for material, whatever that is. My, for me, material is, uh, I watch a whole lot of YouTube interviews with people. There are a lot of them out there veterans you'd be you know not that i write about war so much but just that it's such real it's such a real and honest activity that you get just real comments from people about the world or you know or you know just i uh or interviews with criminals actually you know and just there's so i was always looking for stories that way but my life can't help but come in to it i know that it used to be that there would be a conscious thing and I would try to write it. And a couple of times I have done that. But it's always kind of a, it's an exception. Like I wrote a song about my mother. And I didn't think I'd ever do that. It was specifically about my mother. I wrote it on, I recorded it on Mother's Day in LA. This is years ago. And I was like, wow, I didn't ever think I'd do that, you know. But it just, had, you know, the song, well, to be kind of spacey about it, the song dictated that, you know, I'm sure you've heard that a lot. That the, uh, Melody and the whatever lyrics you have take on a, a real, almost an, a, like an entity. You know, they're, they're, they have a personality. They have needs of their own. You hear that from many, many artists, especially novelists. Like this novel now is telling me what to do after, you know. And so it's like this song is not telling me what to do. It happens all the time. But also I've learned, especially working, or not, working with John D. and Susan, that me knowing what the song is about isn't always necessary. If it sounds good and you feel it in that certain part 
or wherever you feel things, like in you know back here, the hairs the back here. I said, go with it. And I remember this from a Tom Waits interview. He said, there's something there that will be interpreted later. And so I've tried to go with that. There are a couple songs on this record actually where the lyrics were like kind of stream of consciousness. And when I wrote them, they're like, well, that's going to work, you know, because that ha it has to be like that. And um, so, yeah, that's the answer. Is that truly the um, it's a, it's 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 the song coming to life, kind of, you know. So when I was in Nashville, you know, for the for the years of like oh oh seven oh eight whatever. I first encountered that co-write thing where it's a real like, okay, man, we got a room here over at uh, ASCAP. We're going to, we're going to sit down for an hour. Afraid we're going to write a song. You know, it's like, well, that's the song doesn't want that. The song's sitting there like, oh, you're going to write me in an hour, huh? Good luck with that. <laughs> you know, uh, it's just really, it's kind of disrespectful to the song, you know? So I'm like, I saw a lot of that. And I think that really when that happens, people are bringing in ideas. They're not really making stuff up. I mean, I'm, I don't want to speak out of turn. I, again, please don't. Well, I'll own it. I just imitated a Southern guy. You know what I'm saying? I can do that. I don't know. I don't, I don't want to be too much of a... You can see that I'm a smartass. So that, that's what got me in trouble in the past. And I'm trying to be honest. The, the, the co-write thing in Nashville, I saw as a really great commercial pipeline, not a creative pipeline at all. But it, but, but it would be... But money is a great creative force. <laughs> I love money. So, but I remember going to in the, in the rounds with my friend Ed Peterson or Dana Tashin, and there'd be people up, up on stage who would look really, you know, like not like dressed in black, sunglass wearing musicians or anything, just folks. And they'd be from, you know, Manitowoc, whatever which I pronounce Manitowoc, by the way, you got Wisconsinites in here. Or, or they're, they're from Boise. They're from, you know, and they'd say, well, I got this, I got this song. It's, a, you know, uh, Travis Tritt has it on hold. And they, they play the most, I mean, the most unbelievably beautiful song I'd ever heard in my life. Just so insightful and tender. And I realized, well, that's, our, that's where country hits come from. And that's the only place you want to hear them is in the round. Once they get in the studio, they're going to get peed on by every kind of instrument and every kind of idea that th that song doesn't want. And so I'm glad I got to hear what, why those hits, why people, you know, put hold, they call it a hold on a song where an artist will say, I want to think about that song for a month, you know. Hmm. So they'd say, well, such and such has a hold on this song. And, and, and you'd see, well, there's a reason why. You know, it's an amazing thing. So I, I really admire, I, going to Nashville, I really got a real uh, view of a songwriting factory you know, and, and, and the depth of talent that is in, in the, the nation, in the world, you know, so many people from everywhere who are, they've all got that one amazing hit in them, you know? Um, so I, you know, I moved to Nashville again, it's TMI, but as I moved there right after my divorce, the worst time of my life. So it was influenced by that. I could have had a better time in Nashville if I moved to a different time. But I made a record there and uh, and then left town. <laughs> and when I left town, okay, this really did happen. Again, I was driving north on 65 and I'm driving in a budget truck and these bikers come up on either side of me. You know, and, like, you know? and this one biker comes up in front of me and is using me as like a shield or something because he starts popping wheelies. And so I was leaving Nashville with a motorcycle ex escort and the guy Poppy Wheelies. It's like, I wish I did social media. I don't do enough social media. Like, Man, <laughs> that would be so cool. But that happened. You know, they didn't know. They didn't, you know, it was just luck of the draw that they picked my truck to do that too. I was going to say, that's kind of scary. I think I would have headed back to New York. After well, I thought myself. at first, like, what are they going to, they were smiling, they were smiling though. And I didn't know what it was like if I looked like an idiot or something, which I probably did, but. And I had a bunch of stuff. And, no, I don't know what it was. They just somehow, it was like they were, it was, they, they couldn't get seen by the cops somehow if they, if they did it in front of me. I don't know what that was, but they, they did it. And then they, they drove away. I was like, what the fuck was that? So. Well, now um, will you be touring for the new album or? Yes. I have a new agent for the first time in years. It's great. Uh, Odyssey booking. 
Logan and Odyssey booking. And uh, wow, that's all I can say. It's so great to be back on the road again. No pun intended. Um, I've got gigs starting in uh, early September and they just keep on going until uh, who knows when. And that's not been the case for years, you know. So again, I'm over the moon about that. And if, even if you leave this in, I know I talk a lot of whatever, you know, I hope I don't sound like I'm in any way, you know, making fun of people or something. I, I want to be honest. Like I'm not thinking, making fun of the guy in Nashville who talks like that. Well, <laughs> and then maybe I am. Maybe I freaking am. So I just got to own it. I don't know. Well, I kind of um, talk so, like that myself, and I, I can make fun of myself. So, you know, I wouldn't care I'm if from, someone was making fun of me. <laughs> I'm from Kansas. I used to say worse until, you know. Until well, listen, my husband makes fun of me all the time. I have certain words. He's like, that is not in the English dictionary. No, you have a very lovely, very gentle Southern accent. It's totally oh, fine. Well, thank you. Um, it, it's, it's, it's completely fine. I, I still have a Kansas accent. I know that. I've been told that. Uh, a Kansas accent does exist. Barack Obama had a Kansas accent. If you're from Kansas, you could you could hear it. Can't shake it. And you know, if I'm tired or, or been drinking or both, you know, it definitely comes out more. You know. Well, Freddie, um, we hope you come see us in Memphis. Uh, so if you don't have us on your tour, find a way to get down here. We'd love to have you and come see us at Diddy. Uh, we love the new album. Uh, thank we wish you. Wish you the Amy. best of luck and. Um, and, and can't wait to hear the next one. Sounds like it's in the works. So keep us in mind. All right, folks, that's a wrap for this hour. Stay up to date with Freedy Johnston by checking out his website and social media pages. We highly recommend picking up his new album, Back on the Road to You, via 40 Below Records, and telling a friend or two about it. This Kansas native embodies the sound of an American original, proving he's still one of the finest songwriters today. From all of us at Diddy TV, thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon, right here on Insights. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.